<laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the day we are here um, today is the first week, uh, the second week of Eastertide, second Sunday of Eastertide, it's the first full week has been completed. So we're still in the season of Easter, but um, as you see looking around, not as many people come to celebrate the second Sunday of Easter as the first Sunday of Easter. And I understand that. Uh, one of the things that, that happens for people who do celebrate Easter is that we sometimes uh, deal with something called um, narrative whiplash. I don't know, do any of, you, any of you familiar with the term narrative whiplash? It means that the story changes so quickly that you, you kind of go, wait a minute, what happened? And a lot of people feel that way about the, the Christian message, the message of a God who loves us so much that um, that he sent his son to die to reconnect us to himself so that we could be part of his kingdom even now before Jesus returns and, and brings the kingdom in all of its fullness. So, so that can sometimes be baffling to people because they say, wait a minute, the story I heard about God is that he was a mean and vindictive God. He was always telling you what to do, that, that he was always getting in your business and giving you instructions. And if you failed to keep his instructions, then he would smite you. And a lot of people have that image of God. And, and to be honest, there are things in the uh, Hebrew scriptures that, that, um, that would give, I think, anybody pause. We see places in the, in the Hebrew scriptures where, where God uh, sanctions violence, where there is divinely sanctioned violence. And sometimes um, it, is, it is stuff that if we, if we pause and think about it, if we reflect on it in light of what we know about violence today, you know, the, the, today we have images coming out of Ukraine and out of Moripol and things like this, where we go, wow, you know, that's what violence is like. You know, it's not like, you know, we think of it where it's like, he was mean to me or something like that. We, we realize that there are places in times in the world where violence is horrific. And we see that in the, in the Hebrew scriptures throughout the Old Testament, there are occasions where God orders, um, Horrific violence, and so this is something where people go, "Wait a minute, how do I how do I make sense of this? Am I just going to have to deal with this narrative whiplash?" And so there's a question that people sometimes have as they look at the Easter story in light of what has come before in the Hebrew scriptures. So that's a problem sometimes people deal with, and I think our our reading today uh, bears um, looking at because it addresses that problem. And uh, the way the way I would get to it is by this. I heard a I heard a talk once by um, a rabbi, Rabbi David Wolpe. He's a rabbi in um, Los Angeles. He's written a number of books and so forth. And he was giving a talk to an interviewer, and the question came up of his battles with um, cancer. He's a cancer survivor, and uh, he was asked, you know, what, how do you make sense of that as a man of faith? And he said, well, one of the things that that people often ask when they're when they get a bad diagnosis is they say, why me? But they don't ask the opposite question when there are good things in their life. They don't say, why, why me? Why did I get a good education? Why me? Why did I have, have a wonderful partner for my, for my, um, uh, marriage? Why did I have such good kids? We, we tend to say, why me for the bad things? But we don't say as often, why me for the good things? And so, the point he was making is that sometimes when we're faced with a tough question, why me? Why did I get this? This terrible disease or something like that. He says, he says that sometimes if you turn the question around, it shows you the question is not simple. It may not answer your question. You may still be puzzling, why me? But at least it shows you that maybe the question itself is more complicated than you thought it was. So, so I would, I would propose that same way of thinking about the problem of violence in the Hebrew scriptures. 
Because in our reading today, we're going to find a place where God mandates, where God actually intervenes to cause no violence, where there is a lack of violence. And so as, we, as we'll see in our story, it's worth considering, okay, yes, there are things in the Old Testament that make us uh, very troubled, where we say, what's, what's up with that? Why would a good God um, allow that? And I think in the same way we can look at passages like the one we're going to see today and say, well, okay, all right, that doesn't answer my question, but it at least shows me the question is more complicated than I thought it was. So how do we deal not only with the problem of violence in the Hebrew Scriptures, but what about the lack of violence there? So our reading comes to us in the second book of Kings, and just to kind of orient us what's going on in the second book of Kings, the the time is about 850 B.C., so we're talking a long time before Jesus. And uh, by this period of time, the nation of Israel um, has... Uh, entered into what's called the period of the divided monarchy. What happened is there was a um, civil war, and uh, Israel, the the nation of Israel, is splits into two parts. the The smaller part uh, is called Judah, and it's in the south, and it's where Jerusalem is located. But in the north, the the bulk of the of the uh, nation of Israel stays in what is then called Israel, and its capital is in uh, further north, and it's called. Um, uh, Samaria. So um, during this time frame, um, uh, each of them has their own problems, and that's what we see all through the books of uh, uh, Samuel and Kings. Uh, but but what is happening right now is that capital city of Samaria has been besieged because Israel has a northern neighbor too, and the, the neighbor on its to its north is um, Aram, and that's basically what is today Syria or Lebanon, that area, and they have attacked. Um, the the nation of Israel, and they've surrounded the capital city. So the capital city is now besieged. They're not letting any supplies in, so people in the city are getting very hungry. And um, this has been going on. Now, that's that's a bad problem, but it's worse because, because um, Israel has a bad king. Now, the Bible tells us he's a bad king uh, because he, he doesn't listen to the prophet. God sends him a prophet to help him out, and he pays no attention. To, he is actually antagonistic toward the prophet Elisha. His father Ahab was um, antagonistic to Elisha's predecessor, and now he is, you know, like father, like son. He is, he is uh, just like Ahab. He is ignoring the advice of this prophet Elisha. So he's a bad king from the biblical point of view, but he's also a bad king because because Aram looked at him and said, now would be a good time to attack Israel because they've got a lousy king. Not only that, but there was a a, a vassal state, which is like, um, you know, in the news we hear about how Belarus does whatever Russia tells it to. It was that kind of thing, that there was a country called Moab that did whatever Israel told it to, except they said, you know what? Hey, you've got a lousy king. How about if we rebel against you and we quit doing what you say? So, so Moab and Aram. So they've got they've got a, a external attack and they've got their own um, uh, client states are rebelling. So that's the situation they're in, and they've got a bad king uh, for for both uh, secular, I would say, secular and religious reasons. So that's the situation they're in, and they are getting hungry. Now, we don't have to get graphic because chapter 6 gets graphic for us. Uh, terrible things are happening. People are very hungry. There's um, At first, food becomes very expensive, and then pretty soon there is no food to be had. And there are stories about uh, cannibalism and all kinds of ugly things like that. So that's the place we're at. 
And the king blames it all, as he has been in the habit of doing, he blames it all on Elisha. He says, this is Elisha's doing. If he would quit coming and prophesying doom, we'd quit having doom. So uh, that's that's where his mind is at. And so he sends a messenger to to uh, find Elisha, presumably, you know, kind of a process server. And he shows up, and Elisha says, this is where we pick it up finally in, in uh, uh, chapter 7, he says, Elisha says to him, hear the Lord's word. This is what the Lord says. At this time tomorrow, a seah of wheat flour will sell for a shekel at Samaria's gate, and two seahs of barley will sell for a shekel. He says, tomorrow the gate will be open, right? That's where people did their shopping. They would go down to the gate. The farmers would bring food up to the city. The, the city people would come out to the gate. They'd, they'd buy and sell there at the gate. The gate's been closed because that's how you ward off the, the Arameans. You close the gate and you wait them out. Except right now we've been waiting a long time, right? And he's saying, you'll be buying and selling as normal at the city gate. And not only that, but the prices will be pretty much back to normal. And scholars tell us, you know, how much a seah was worth and so forth. But it doesn't matter. You know, in the previous chapter, there wasn't any food. There, You know, at no price could you get a seah of wheat or a seah of barley. So it, he's saying things will be pretty much back to normal. The siege will be list, lifted. There'll be, there'll be food in the city. There'll be food to be had. And... The, the officer, this guy who is sent to him, presumably, he says, he says, how could that be? He says, come on, even if the Lord should make windows in the sky, how could that happen? So, even if, like our, our ancestors, you know, God poured manna down from heaven, how could it possibly be what you're proposing? And Elisha says, you will see it with your own eyes. And then he adds, but you won't eat from it. Now, if you read the stories about Elisha, you see Elisha is kind of hot-headed. He's, he's, he's not somebody to trifle with. And um, uh, this guy gets off relatively easy because he's just told he will die. <laughs> so <laughs> it can be worse. Um, but then again, you remember, this guy has a, has a warrant on his head. Elisha has been dealing with a, a, a vindictive king for a long time. Imagine being a dissident in Russia right now, right? Uh, you know, how would you like that after a couple of months or years you know, living on the lamb, you might be a little short-tempered too. So Elisha says, you won't eat from it. So that's the prophecy. And then the scene changes. Suddenly we're outside the gate. You know, we've been inside the city, someplace near the palace maybe, and now we're outside the gate. And there's four men with skin disease. Now, uh, traditionally this is rendered leper, and I know I'm going to say that, but, you know, footnote, not the leprosy we think of today. So uh, it's a skin disease. Um, they said to each other, what are we doing sitting here till we die? If we decide, let's go into the city. Then, well, there's famine there. There's nothing to be had there, so that's no good. And if we stay here outside the gate, well, we'll die here too. So we have no choice. Let's go see if the Arameans will, will feed us, right? Let's defect to the Arameans. People inside the city can't. We, that's the one good thing about being a leper and being a, an outcast is you can defect, right? So we're going to go outside. I mean, we are already outside, so let's go over to the Aramean camp. The worst they can do is kill us, and we're we're that's on the the, the menu anyway. So we're going to die. So we might as well. So they set out in the evening to the Aramean camp, and they come to the edge of the camp, but there was no one there. The Arameans have fled. God had made the Aramean camp hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a strong army. They, the Arameans, had said to each other, Listen, do you hear that? Israel's king has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to come against us. So the Hittites are their own northern neighbor. So, you know, 
Judah, Israel, Aram, the Hittites. And the Egyptians are down in the south. So they're saying, we're, we're hemmed in. Our, our northern and southernmost um, adversaries are, are coming at us. So they say, let's, well for you, let's go east, right? So let's, let's escape. So they basically get out of there. So they say, um, uh, they, they got up and fled in the evening, leaving their tents, horses, and donkeys. They left the camp exactly as it was and ran for their lives. So that's what, uh, that's the situation. The battle belongs to the Lord, but sometimes so does the non-battle. The non-battle belongs to the Lord as well. And, um, and, and it, so I, I don't say this because it cancels out all of the, all of the violence we read about, um, in other places in the, in the scriptures, but it shows us that the, the question defies a simple answer. It's not simply that God is mean and vindictive and, you know, is ready to smite you. It's that there's a hard problem here because sometimes God uh, ordains violence and sometimes God actually intervenes to prevent violence. That instead of everybody in the city dying horribly, or somehow God equipping the city so they can go out and, and destroy the Arameans, God intervenes to prevent violence. So it shows us that the, the question isn't a simple one, that it doesn't answer it, but it at least gives us a, a, um, some, some indication that the question is difficult. And as a Christian, I will tell you, that's because the question is so difficult that the only answer is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who, who gives us the the clue to unraveling the violence in the Hebrew scriptures. So that's a conversation for another day or really about 50 days in the year. So um, I'm going to move ahead now. But just to say, it's a, it's a hard question and the answer is equally hard. So back to the lepers. Where are the lepers? The lepers, the, the men with skin disease come to the edge of the camp and they did what you would do if you were starving. They entered the tent where they ate and drank, right? They're, they're people. And then once they were full, then they said, and now let's grab some of this loot. So they carried off some silver, gold, and garments, and they hid them. I love the way oftentimes we see in the, in the, um, in the scriptures, we see how people, you know, will mention silver, gold, and garments. And it just shows you how much things have changed, right? You know, for us, we go to the we go to the store and we pay, you know, five dollars for a T-shirt or something. You know, back in then, garments were classed in the same; they were luxury goods. That everybody lived pretty much in rags, except if you were very wealthy, and then you had garments. So they they take away some garments, um, and they hid them, and they came back and they found some more. And finally, they got to a place where they said, "What we're doing isn't right." Today is a day of good news, but we're keeping quiet about it. If we wait until dawn, something bad will happen to us. They said, this news, the news that, that, that God has intervened and the Arameans have fled is too good not to share. I mean, you know, now that I, now, you know, now that I have a full belly and now that I've hidden some, you know, I've got a retirement account, you know, now I can actually think it over and I can say, you know what, actually, I'm in pretty good shape here. And, those people in the city are starving, and maybe they're thinking, you know, well, they cast me out, but but maybe they're thinking, but I've got relatives there. So whatever it is, they say, they say, if we if we stay here, if we keep this to ourselves, something bad will happen to us. And people debate what they're thinking, and who knows? They could be thinking, you know, uh, just superstitious that 
that you know if you break the chain then you know bad luck will happen to you or whatever you know you know who knows what they're thinking maybe they think god is going you know god has shown that he can he can intervene so maybe we should uh, tread lightly here but whatever reason it is they say we're keeping quiet about it let's tell the palace so they go to the they go to the gate they tell the gatekeepers and they explain that this happens and the gatekeepers shouted out the news and it gets all the way up to the palace and so Eventually, they wake up the king, and he says to his servants, let me tell you what the Arameans are doing to us. They know we're starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the fields. They're thinking, the Israelites will come out from the city, and then we'll capture them alive and invade the city. So he says, this is suspect. I don't trust them. Um, you know, beware of Arameans leaving camps or something like that. So, so he says, I don't trust them. But he's got a servant there um, who says, Please let some of the men take five of the horse that are left and let's send them out to see what happens. They're in the same situation as the large number of Israelites who are left here, right? The worst thing that can happen to them is the Arameans will capture them and kill them. And that's pretty much, you know, you know, just run the, the, the film forward a few frames and that's what we're all headed for. So you might as well send them out. So they chose two chariots and their horses and the king said, go and see. So they go and they see, not only have the Arameans truly run away, but at what little they carried with them got heavy and they're, they're in a hurry, so they start dropping it along the way. And so they find this, the, the trail is littered with stuff that the Arameans decided not to carry. And so uh, the road was filled the whole way with garments and equipment. There's the garments again. Um, garments and equipments the Arameans had thrown away in their rush. And the messengers returned and reported to the king. And the people went out and looted the Aramean camp. And so it happened that a sea of wheat flour did sell for a shekel, and two seas of barley sold for a shekel in agreement with the Lord's word. So, sure enough, what Elisha said, even though it seemed unlikely, even though it would have required the windows of heaven to be opened up, uh, took place because God intervened on behalf of Israel. But God did so in a way, not by smiting the, the Arameans, but simply by frightening them away. They run back home. So so um, uh, the battle belongs to the Lord. But, you know, no one was required to do anything. You know, no, nobody had any role in that. God did it all by himself. But at the same time, God did use some people in this story, not to smite the Arameans or not even to frighten the Arameans, but to report the good news, the good news that the Arameans were gone. So we see that God has positioned both the um, uh, uh, lepers and the uh, servant um, in order to help. And that's a, that's a general theme throughout the, the Bible, is that God positions and equips us so that we can help. God doesn't need our help smiting anybody, right? He'll, he'll take care of the smiting or the non-smiting. So don't, don't worry about that. Um, you'll know if God wants you to smite somebody. But he does position us to help. And most of, most of the time, the way we help is by telling people. That, that we, we tell people, look, look at these people, right? The, the people in our story. The lepers say, the news I have is so good that I have to share it. This is the week after Easter. The, the disciples saw Jesus for several weeks. He, Jesus appeared over and over again uh, throughout the, the first couple of weeks after he had risen from the dead. And uh, just a few weeks after that, the disciples went out and started telling everybody about Jesus because it was like this. It was news too good not to share. 
And that's what we're called to do as disciples, that we're called to share the good news. Now, uh, there are other things we're called to do, um, uh, but, uh, you know, give generously, serve sacrificially, um, you know, turn the other cheek. There's things that we are called to do. But for the most part, what we're called to do, the, the Great Commission, is to go and tell other people, to make disciples of the nations. So, I've wondered, if Christians had focused on that mission, you know, I think the problem isn't what happened to the Amalekites or the Jebusites. You know, that's that's a that's an intellectual problem. We can wonder what's what's up with the violence in the Old Testament. I think what bothers us is everything that's happened since then: the Crusades, the 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 Thirty Years' War, um, Northern Ireland. You know what? Ha- what? You know uh, why? Why does the violence continue, even in the New Testament era, in the time of the the church? Why is it? And you know, I don't know. It's it's conceivable that God has told those people to smite each other. I I don't know. Um, but when I look at my own life, I know that I often do things because I assume God wants me to do it. That surely God wants me to smite this person or do whatever it is. And I, so instead of instead of asking God, what is it you want me to do? I say, God, here's my plan. Um, I'd like your approval, right? And more than that, I'd like your support. So I wonder how much of the time Christians have not had any authorization to smite their neighbors or anything, and how often it's been something where they went to God and said, I'm going to be telling people this is in your name, FYI, but... I didn't ask for your approval or your your help. I'm just going to go do it in your name. So I think if God wants us to smite people, he can do that. But we know that there's things that we are called to do. We're called to tell people the good news about Jesus, and we're called to pray. We're called to pray for the king who won't listen. You know, the king was never going to listen to Elisha. You know, we live in a culture that is largely... Non-Christian, you know. There's, we're running on Christian fumes right now. There's lots of people who have the ability to affect our world. You know, Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden. There's lots of people who are in positions of authority, and we don't know how much they listen to the Elishas that God sends them. So we can pray. We can pray that they hear a message and respond. So, God does use people, but. The outcome is God's responsibility. There's a tension there that that it's not on us. I think it's so hard for us to say, use me, Lord, without saying, and if it seems to be going badly, then I'll just ramp up and I'll just escalate until I think I've got control of it. To simply say, I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do. I'm not going to go beyond that. And I'm going to trust you for the outcome. We can do that in world affairs, and we can do it in our personal lives to realize that the responsibility is God's. All God asks us to do is to let him use us, mostly by telling people the good news. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the good news that you love us and sent Jesus to reconnect us so that we can be part of your kingdom even now while we wait for its full appearance. 
Lord, help us to know how you want us to be used by you. Help us to see the ways that you have positioned and equipped us so that we can be part of what you're doing in the world. But help us, Lord, to trust that the battle is yours and so is the non-battle. Help us to remember that the outcome is your responsibility. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.